I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our final tower. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson, and today we are talking about William Randolph Hearst. He was really the first media mogul, the first person with a big multi-million dollar media empire. His was primarily a newspaper business, but he also got into film, radio, and a number of other businesses as well. And obviously as a podcaster, media is something that I am interested in. So this episode is a little bit selfish. As I was reading the story, you'll hear that I'm kind of reverse engineering in my brain how to build a really successful media business. So if that's something that's interesting to you, if you're engaged in media, if you're an influencer, a producer, a writer, an editor, a celebrity, a media executive, William Randolph Hearst was all of those things. So this is going to be the perfect episode for you. And it's also, to me, a really interesting story of power. I'm giving you a little bit of a spoiler here, but there's this interesting story where in Cuba, tensions are boiling between the Spanish government, which owned Cuba at the time, and the native Cubans who wanted to be independent. And there were some skirmishes, and it's looking like things are at a boiling point. So William Randolph Hearst, who owns a New York newspaper, sends a reporter to Havana. The reporter gets there to Havana, the capital of Cuba, and he writes back to Hearst complaining, you know, this is all kind of overblown. There's no actual fighting going on. Things have calmed down. There's nothing really exciting to report on. And the reporter, he's actually also an illustrator, writes back and says, can I come back to New York? You know, there's nothing to do here. And Hearst says, no, stay. And he says, you furnish the pictures and I will furnish the war. And within months, the United States was at war with Spain over Cuba. Now, it is a slight exaggeration to say that Hearst is the one who caused the Spanish-American War. But you know, at the time, people believed that to be true. People believed that he was the main force behind this war, the Spanish-American War. And there are still people who believe that he was a major force behind it. He was a major force behind it. In a democracy, the government is supposed to reflect the will of the people, the citizens, their desires, what they want. But what is it that they want? And who is it that determines what they want? The will of the people is not this freestanding, independent thing that can't be influenced. Obviously not, right? Many things have an impact on popular opinion, and nothing more so than news media. People have always known this. People still know this. It's why Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post or why Elon Musk bought Twitter, um, which is, of course, also a major source of news. So this is a story about how to become a media mogul, but also about how to turn that position of influence into power. So let's get into it. Part one on the life of William Randolph Hearst after this quick break. Speaking of becoming a media mogul, if you're interested in media, if you're a creator or interested in becoming a creator, I've got a great resource for you. It's called Creative Elements. It's a podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top creators. The host is Jay Klaus, and I know Jay. He's a great guy. He's super smart on this kind of stuff. He's interviewed guests like Tim Urban, James Clear, Tori Dunlap, and Cody Sanchez. He recently did an episode with Chris Williamson that I really loved. I thought it was one of the best things I've ever listened to in terms of how to become a really successful podcaster. So you can think of creative elements a little bit like how I built this, but for digital creators. Through highly produced narrative interviews, Jay dives into the specifics of how these creators are building their audiences today. So, you know, if you're coming to how to take over the world to learn some of these timeless principles of how people did it in the past, well, with creative elements, you're going to learn some of these tactics of what's working on the cutting edge right now. By learning how these creators are earning a living off their art and creativity, you'll gain the tools and confidence to become a smarter creator. So if you're building your own creative business, you should subscribe and listen to creative elements right here in your favorite podcast player. William Randolph Hearst probably had the best childhood I've ever heard of. I certainly think he is who I'm most jealous of in terms of when you talk about childhoods. He was born in 1863 to Phoebe and George Hurst. And George, William's father, is a really interesting guy in his own right. He could have his own episode of how to take over the world. He's born in Missouri, and uh, his dad has a very small mine. He doesn't make a lot of money off of mining, but George, his son, learns the business of mining. And so 1849 happens. There's the gold rush to California, and George goes out to California, and he uses that knowledge that he has to to be smart about mining and strikes it rich, becomes a kind of minor millionaire in the gold rush in in San Francisco. So William Randolph Hearst is born in San Francisco to a fairly wealthy family in 1863. And I say I'm jealous because you think about it, it's California, the weather is perfect, 
It's about 20 years after the gold rush. San Francisco is the United States' ninth largest city. So it has all the amenities, culture, art that you could want, but it's still the wide open West. It's not fully filled in. It's not fully developed. It's not too crowded. And William uh, gets to enjoy this. He's unbelievably doted on by servants, by maids, and most of all, by his mother. Uh, She just is obsessed with her son, William. This is a common theme, actually. Interestingly enough, a lot of these men are just like spoiled mama's boys. Their mothers dote on them like nothing else. And I don't know if that's because doting helps them become great. I kind of doubt that. I think it's maybe more just that these are extremely charming people. They charm their mothers who who can't help but dote on them. So I, I don't know where it comes from, but this certainly falls into a pattern. Phoebe Hurst is obsessed with her son, can't get enough of him. And part of that is because he's an only child. She actually wants more children, but George is like a true mining man. He's always going all over the country. He's in Idaho. He's in Wyoming, Montana, Utah, all over the Western United States, Canada, and Mexico looking for mines. And Phoebe actually follows him around a lot and is trying to get him to have children with her, but they never manage to. And William's an only child, perhaps because he almost never sees his father. William acts out for attention. He's something of a prankster. He's always getting into trouble. He throws a cobblestone through his dancing instructor's window. He ties a string of lights around the tail of a neighbor's cat. And imagine this is before electric lights. So I I think this is like candles that he's tying around his neighbor's cat's tail. He takes a toy cannon, which is supposed to be just a toy, but he fills it with real gunpowder and he shoots a pigeon from his hotel window. So he's a major prankster and is often getting into trouble as a kid. This is another common theme, by the way. If you remember Steve Jobs, famous prankster as a kid, Thomas Edison always doing these pranks with electricity. If you want to find where the really talented and successful people in an industry are, look for the pranksters. It's a common theme for whatever reason. So through all this, the Hearsts are rich, but not that rich. And they're a little bit boomer bust. Their, their fortunes can go up and down. That changes when William is 10 years old. Um, in 1873, his mother takes him on an 18-month tour of Europe. He learns French and German and becomes obsessed with trying to collect antiques. It's a great trip, but when they get back, they find that they do not have a house. George lost everything in a bad mining deal, and they have to go take up at a boarding house. Now, it's a nice boarding house. It's not like they're homeless, but still, no more servants, uh, no, no more nannies. It's a big change for them. And they're not poor. How do I explain this? They are still in a certain social class, right? So they're not poor. They're broke. There's a, a difference, right, between poor and broke. So they're broke for the next three years. They basically have no money. And then again, it's really more like four or five years later when William is 14 or 15, George finally strikes it big, big. So if before they were minor millionaires, now they are major millionaires. They are one of the richest families in the United States. He has more money than you could ever want in your entire life. So yeah, their lives change at that point. So William, when the time comes, is able to go to Harvard because they're upper class now. And as a freshman at Harvard, you can tell, okay, this guy is special. He rises to the top of the best clubs. Clubs are something that's really big at Harvard, a big part of the social scene there. And back then, there was no like, oh, this club's a little different. I like this vibe. I'll choose this club. No, the clubs were actually ranked top to bottom. So the best clubs and the worst clubs. And everyone wanted to get into the best clubs. And so William is able to navigate his way to the top of the very best clubs at Harvard. And part of the way that he does this is by spending an extravagant amount of money. He parties really hard. He keeps the alcohol flowing for all his friends. Anyone who wants to come to his apartment and party is free and welcome to do so. He also spends liberally on the university itself. So Harvard is different at this time from from what it is now. You don't have all these official organizations. So for example, the crew team, the baseball team, the football team, these are all funded by the student body. And these are people just, you know, students chipping in money. And then the players go out and buy themselves uniforms. It's not tightly controlled and regulated like the NCAA is now in college sports. And so William, as a student with a very rich father, is the top booster, the top funder of many of these sports. So that's his freshman year. He gets involved in all this stuff, gets into the best clubs, and does very well academically. His sophomore year, one of the main things he does is he takes over the Harvard Lampoon, which is a comical newspaper at Harvard. It's known even today as a a very famous comedic newspaper has a very long storied history. And William Randolph Hearst is a big part of that history. When he showed up, it actually was not this great thing. 
his quote about it is that it was always late and not always funny. And so he wants to change that. And he comes in and he's expected to fund the paper as the president of the newspaper. And he certainly has the resources to do that, but he doesn't want to. He actually wants to turn it around so it doesn't need funding. And he goes out, he sells more subscriptions to alumni. He pounds the pavement to get more sales for ads to carry in the newspaper. He improves the writing by finding good writers to make sure that it's actually funny and that it comes out on time and that people want it. And so he goes out and starts talking to more advertisers and he ends up increasing the revenue by 300% and increases the circulation by 50%. So he comes into the Harvard Lampoon, it has a deficit of $200 and he takes it to a surplus of $650. And so he starts to see, okay, you know, this is just a sophomore in college, but this is someone who knows how to run a media property, knows how to run a newspaper. And he does this very well, but maybe does it too well. He, he's so involved with all these various things at college that his academics really start to fail. Um, he starts doing very poorly and he kind of can't be bothered to care much. He's like a big man on campus. He's funding all these things. He becomes the president of the intercollegiate baseball association. So like this big association, he's, he's in charge of all the games that are happening, all the college baseball games that are, that are happening essentially in the United States. And so he doesn't really have time to study and he doesn't care to study. And, um, eventually he gets put on suspension. And like I said, he can't be bothered to care. So he needs to study some more and take some tests to prove that he's ready to come back to Harvard and he just won't do it. He won't study. So eventually the faculty at Harvard say, okay, you're gone. And they kick him out. Now, while he was at Harvard, two things had happened. One is he had started reading this newspaper, this new newspaper in New York called the world started by Joseph Pulitzer. And it was kind of taking the, the newspaper scene by storm. It was a different kind of newspaper than people had seen before. And he loves it. So he reads the world every single day and he's starting to get immersed, you know, between his experience of running the Harvard Lampoon and reading the world, he starts to get excited about this newspaper business. And also at the same time, his father had bought a newspaper called the San Francisco Examiner out in San Francisco, not really as an investment. It lost money every year, but he bought it because he was politically active, politically interested. He was the main Democrat out in California. California was mostly a Republican state at the time, but George Hearst is sort of the Democratic Party in California. And newspapers were a great way to organize support, get your voice out there. So George buys the San Francisco Examiner, but he doesn't have time to do anything with it, right? He's a mining man. He's also in the state legislature. So he's just kind of letting this newspaper run itself. And uh, it's not doing a good job of running itself. It's kind of a third rate newspaper. And William, who's in the process of getting kicked out of Harvard, thinks, well, this is a great opportunity. So he starts reading his father's paper and he's not impressed with what he finds. He writes back to his dad. It is a positive insult to our readers to set before them such pictures of repulsive deformity as these. And yet such abortions are not entirely out of place in an article that comes to a climax with a piece of imbecility so detestable that it would render the death of the writer justifiable homicide. So <laughs> you can tell this is someone who really cares about the content of this newspaper, really cares about good writing and it really bothers him that the examiner is so bad so in 1886 it's a big year will turns 23 his father gets elected to the senate and at the same time will moves out to san francisco to take over the examiner expectations were very low it's a third-rate newspaper in america's ninth largest city and it's being taken over by a billionaire's playboy son and will was a playboy when he comes back, he moves to Sausalito, which is across the bay from San Francisco. It's across the Golden Gate Bridge today. But of course, at the time, the Golden Gate Bridge hadn't been built yet. So he actually has to sail to work every day. He's living with a waitress who he met in Cambridge. And I say a waitress, but she's, um, uh, I mean, she served a very specific clientele. Let's say um, she, she wasn't a prostitute, but she wasn't not a prostitute, right? She was uh, one of these women who kind of uh, like to come into the orbit of, of rich men and, and get paid. So not a woman of good repute. And so he's living with her. He's sailing every day to San Francisco and people think, all right, this playboy guy, there's no way he's serious about this, but the newspaper men of San Francisco had no idea what was about to hit them because will was not content to just be a playboy who was babysitting a third rate newspaper and waiting for his inheritance. He had some big plans for the examiner. We'll find out what those were after this quick break. Hey, it's me, Ben. Do you want to talk to me personally and strategize about how you can apply the lessons from this podcast? If that sounds interesting to you, then go over to my website 
and click the button that says Talk with Ben. And you can pay to sign up for a 30-minute consulting session. I've got a framework for achieving greatness by identifying who your heroes are, studying their lives, and assessing what habits and tactics to adopt in order to achieve something like what they did. So if that's interesting to you, you can sign up by going to HTTOTW, that stands for How to Take Over the World, HTTOTW.com, and clicking on the link that says Consult with Ben. So the biggest newspaper in San Francisco was the San Francisco Chronicle. It actually still is and was back then too. And Will wanted to beat them, but that was going to be tough because they were a first-rate operation with great reporting, strong financial backing from the wealthy DeYoung family. Will's first move at the Examiner is brilliant. He takes a look and realizes, all right, it's going to take a lot of work before I can get on the level of the Chronicle. So how do I jumpstart things? So what he does is he licenses content from a big New York newspaper, the New York Herald. So now he's getting top-rate news from the East Coast. And it makes him seem like a top newspaper, right? He's getting this great reporting. No one had actually done this before. Everyone had just done their own original reporting. No one else was licensing content from other East Coast newspapers. So the fact that he's carrying articles from a New York paper with offices all over the world makes people say, okay, this is cool. This is something different. And so readership goes, goes way up. The Chronicle sees this and says, okay, we got to copy this kid. We can't let him just beat us this way. So they also start licensing content from a New York newspaper, they contract with The World, uh, which I had already talked about. And and so The Chronicle contracts with The World, and that makes them, once again, kind of the juggernaut, right? They're the biggest San Francisco newspaper, and they are contracted with the biggest New York newspaper. So this strategy has vaulted Hearst up to second place in San Francisco, but he's still well behind. So that's when he gets to work really pushing forward with his own original content. He makes the headlines bigger, catchier, more salacious, more kind of what today we might call clickbait. But it's not just clickbait. He's also increasing the quality of the cartoons, the illustrations, getting better printing presses to make the type neater and more attractive. He starts experimenting with original reporting in new and interesting ways. He does stunt reporting. When a hospital is supposedly abusing patients, he has one of his reporters fake a leg injury and get admitted to the hospital and comes back and reports that indeed, This hospital was neglecting and abusing their patients. So he's doing this kind of stuff. He's also experimenting with different stories to see what catches on and ends up finding out that crime really moves papers. You've probably heard the saying, if it bleeds, it leads. And uh, Hearst definitely believed that. So crime stories go from 10% of the examiner's headlines when he takes over to then 26% by the end. The other big thing he does, probably the most important thing he does, is he starts to acquire unbelievable talent. And he's paying them 50% more than the Chronicle. So anytime that he sees a great writer, or he reads anything and thinks, wow, I love that, he goes out and uh, it's funny, he's like collecting these people. His whole life, he was a great collector. He loved to collect antiques and paintings um, and art. And for him, I think these, for him, I think these writers were art and he liked to collect them as well. So he's collecting some of these great writers, not only in California, but throughout the United States. And you can see how much it matters to him. There's this one story, one of these great writers, he's this kind of recluse guy who who loves to criticize the government in California. And he lives out in Oakland, which is across the bay from San Francisco. And the Bay Bridge, which connects San Francisco to Oakland today, did not exist yet. So it's kind of a hike to get out to Oakland. You have to take the ferry and it's a whole big process. And this writer is in his house in Oakland and someone knocks at the door and it's this kid And uh, he walks up and says, uh, hey, kid, what do you want? And he says, I come from the examiner. I want to talk to you about a writing job. And this writer says, oh, you come from Mr. Hearst. And he says, I am Mr. Hearst. And he can't believe it because no one expects the owner of the newspaper to come all the way out to Oakland to, to talk to this guy to try and hire him. But he loved writing. And that was the most important thing to him, to have great content. And it gave him an advantage because, you know, because Michael DeYoung, who is a millionaire and owns the Chronicle, I can guarantee you that the owner of the San Francisco Chronicle was not going out to Oakland to visit writers to try and recruit them to his newspaper. So this is something that gives Hearst an advantage, that he cares so much. And the results of this are astounding. He discovers and helps promote some of the greatest writers in American history. So he discovers Jack London. He discovers Ambrose Bierce. He's not as well known as Jack London, but also a great writer. He definitely didn't discover Mark Twain, but he was early into his career and really helped boost him. So look, I think one of the reasons that Hearst consistently won is that he loved 
the game for the sake of it. He loved newspaper as an art. He loved writing. He wasn't just doing it for the money. Another thing that he does is use his dad's position and wealth to advance the business. So in one instance, he wants the newspaper to go to places other than San Francisco. So nearby communities, towns, cities like Sacramento, a little farther north, Monterey, a little further south. And so in order to get his newspapers distributed to these other towns and cities, he needs help. He needs them to be carried on the train, on the railroad. But the trains won't carry the newspaper. I couldn't find out exactly why. I think it's either, you know, trains were full, they didn't have enough room, or maybe they already had a deal with the Chronicle and maybe they had like a non-compete clause. They, they couldn't carry the examiner, but they're saying we won't carry it for whatever reason. And so he complains to his dad and says, dad, you know, the other Senator is Leland Stanford, the guy who owns the trains. So can you talk to Stanford and get my newspaper on these trains so we can start to distribute it elsewhere? So dad talks to Stanford and he makes it happen. In another instance, he looks around and realizes, Hey, all these big businesses in San Francisco are advertising with the Chronicle and not with the examiner. And that's pretty messed up because my dad's pretty important. They, they probably owe him favors. And so he writes to his dad and he says, and this is a quote, as these sons of bitches are principally indebted to you for whatever they have. I think that it is the goddamnedest low down business I have ever heard of. I don't apologize for the swear words for, I think the circumstances excuse them. Now, if you'll telegraph a hot telegram to withdraw all your business from these firms and not give them any more until they advertise in the examiner and not in the Chronicle, I think we can accomplish something. And of course, his father obliges and they're able to shake loose a lot of these advertisers and get some more money for the Chronicle. And so the effect of all this is that the newspaper slowly starts to gain on the Chronicle. And before long, people just can't deny anymore. The Examiner is the best newspaper in San Francisco. It's better than the Chronicle. And then in 1890, they finally surpass them to become the top newspaper in California. And in 1890, they become profitable for the first time. For four years, William Hearst had just been burning money to create this amazing thing. He's paying these writers all this money. And uh, it's only four years later that it finally becomes profitable. And this is a great business achievement for him to have become the biggest newspaper in San Francisco. But I think it's an even bigger artistic one. That's what he cared most about. One of his writers was a woman named Winifred Black. And here's what she had to say about this collection of great writers that worked at the San Francisco Examiner. She said, the Examiner was a place full of geniuses. I love that quote, a place full of geniuses. Nowhere was there ever a more brilliant and more outrageous, incredible, ridiculous, glorious set of typical newspaper people than there was in that shabby old newspaper office. So I, I do think there's something to be learned there, which is you never lose by spending whatever it takes to get all the best people under one roof. That's a strategy that seems to work time and time again. So in 1890, Will has won San Francisco, but that year everything changes. His father dies. And when they open the will, he's embarrassed to hear that all of the money had been left to Will's mom, Phoebe. William Randolph Hearst receives zero inheritance. Now, of course, that money is all going to come to him eventually when his mom dies, but it's a vote of no confidence from beyond the grave from his father. There were a couple of reasons that his dad might have done this. One is this waitress who he lives with. Okay, that was always embarrassing to his parents and showed that maybe he was not ready to be mature, to grow up and be an adult. And then the other thing was his spending. So as I said, in 1890, the newspaper was finally profitable and very valuable, but he wasn't paying himself a salary from the newspaper. He was actually still basically collecting an allowance, except for it's an allowance of like a million dollars a month. He's spending extravagantly on his own life and his own lifestyle. And so his parents still kind of see him as a kid, even though he's having these successes. And so I think this is sort of a posthumous insult from his father. And it's what inspires him in 1891 to say, okay, I am going to go shopping for a newspaper in New York. He felt he needed to prove himself even further. He had won in the minor leagues in San Francisco, America's ninth biggest city, but New York was the biggest. That was the major leagues. And now he's following a playbook that was set out by Joseph Pulitzer. Pulitzer was the biggest newspaper man in America at the time. He had started out in St. Louis and he had won St. Louis in the same way that Will had won San Francisco. He'd built up the biggest newspaper in St. Louis, and then he had decided to go over to New York and try to take over that industry. And he did. He succeeded. As I said, the world became a sensation, became the biggest and best newspaper in the world. And others had since tried to copy that playbook. They had, you know, after they had become the biggest newspaper in their little provincial city, 
They'd move to New York and try to start a new newspaper to compete with the world. And basically all of them failed. And one of these people who had failed was a guy named McLean. And he had a newspaper called the New York Morning Journal. And it was not doing well. He basically had burned out and realized, all right, I can't do this. I, can, I can't compete with Pulitzer. And so he decides to sell his, his newspaper. And so Hearst swoops in and buys it for $150,000. And just like in San Francisco, his chances look grim at first. The, the consensus of the newspaper men in New York was that Hearst had bought a lemon. Not just because it's a bad newspaper, but because, come on, he's not going to be able to compete here. Here's what one newspaper man wrote about the prevailing attitudes when Hearst came to New York. He said, He was ridiculed for his youth and assurance and sneered at as a rich man's son rushing in where angels feared to tread. He was both pitied and jeered when it leaked out that he had bought the journal. You got to understand that the world was already cool and innovative. It was the greatest paper run by Joseph Pulitzer, who was this wheeling and dealing hotshot. Going to New York and trying to compete with the world would be like some young entrepreneur trying to think of what business to start and deciding, you know, I'm going to start a search engine. I'm going to go head to head with Google. The guy uses that phrase where angels feared to tread. Like you just didn't go toe to toe with Pulitzer. He beat everyone. He was shameless in his headlines. He was ruthless in his tactics. And he was really innovative in his reporting. The world was the best. It was unassailable and everyone knew it. But Will was going to try anyway. He, he didn't believe any of that. So his first move when he gets to New York is to bring some of his best reporters and writers from San Francisco. One of the writers wrote that they were depressed to be moving east. You know, New York is supposedly the best city in the world, but they loved San Francisco. They loved the freedom, the, the wide open spaces. And so they're not excited to be going to New York. But he wrote, we would have gone to the Fiji Islands or Greenland's icy mountains if the big chief had wanted to send us to either of those probably delightful, but rather remote places. So you can see from this that his writers were incredibly loyal to him. They would have gone, as this guy saying, they would have gone anywhere in the world for him. He appreciated their value. He paid them very well. And not only that, but he created a really great, fun place to work. And he pushed them to do their best work. They were accomplishing things at the San Francisco Examiner that they had never accomplished in their careers before. So, so they loved William Randolph Hearst. After bringing in some of his best writers, the next thing he does is he quickly looks at the situation and says, okay, I have to differentiate myself. I can't just be another really good newspaper because the world already exists and it's already good. So if I just do that, then I'm going to be the second great newspaper and no one's going to pay any attention. Why would I subscribe to the, to the journal if I'm already subscribed to the world? So he looks at it and says, okay, well, all the best newspapers charge two cents. They're two cent papers. There were also one cent papers, but these were generally uh, low quality, little, little rags. And so Will says, okay, I'm going to fill this niche of being the only newspaper that is as good as a two cent paper. That is a extremely high quality, well-reported newspaper, but I'm only going to charge one cent. So I'm going to be two cent quality paper, one cent cost. And the only reason he can do this is because he's got his father's fortune. So he can afford to, to lose money for a number of years. And, and that's what he'll have to do. So he's dumping money into this paper that is costs as much as two cent papers to, to operate, but only has a price of one cent. So he goes for this strategy, brings in his writers and goes about using the same playbook as the examiner. He's trying to make the journal the best paper in town. He's writing better, bigger headlines than they had previously had, improving the quality of the illustrations. He starts poaching really good writers from other newspapers in New York City. And um, yeah, he's just generally creating a great paper. William always believed there was no substitute for quality, for great writing. And I say great writing, but there was sort of this interesting dichotomy of, on the one hand, like, like Jack London, Mark Twain, like great literary prose in these newspapers and great journalists doing great reporting. While at the same time, there's all this typical yellow journalism stuff of like, sensationalizing stories, exaggerating them, sometimes just making stuff up, doing these totally bombastic clickbaity headlines. And I guess William Randolph Hearst never saw any contradiction in this. He did the, the stuff that he had to do in order to get eyeballs on the paper. And then once you really got into that paper, that's where you would find the great writing and the great reporting. So he's doing that. He's doing both at the same time and really bringing up the level of the journal. He's making it impossible to ignore. And he is making up ground because of his strategy. He's, he's gaining on the world. 
And as he's doing this, he's making a splash. Everyone's paying attention to him. And Pulitzer freaks out. And so he makes one huge mistake. And that is he's looking at the journal and it's rising and he gets nervous and he says, okay, well, then I guess we have to adopt their strategy. We also have to be a one cent newspaper in order to go in and and snuff them out. And you can see the logic, right? The only reason that people are going to the journal over the world, this is a one cent paper, same, same level of quality, but it's a one cent paper. But what he doesn't consider is that once he does this, he doesn't have the high ground anymore. He can no longer claim to be, you know, the old storied world, the indisputed best newspaper in the world. No, he's getting down on their level. And William Randolph Hearst really seizes on this. He, he puts out a, a big editorial and says, uh, it, it's called a reluctant convert and says, welcome to the arena of the one cent papers. You know, so nice of you to take inspiration from us. So nice of you to copy us. And that is what it looks like. It looks like the world is copying the journal. And now it seems like the journal is the world's leading newspaper. It's, it's the one that is setting the agenda and that people are copying. And so actually when Pulitzer does this, uh, Hearst can see that, wow, they're weak right now. I'm going to move in for the kill. And that's what he does. He goes straight for their throat. He starts hiring all of the best writers from the world. And he's telling these people, I will pay you whatever I have to pay you to get over to the examiner. And when I say all the best writers, I mean, he is hiring tons of people from the world. And he's able to do so, uh, not just because he's paying tons of money, because whenever he does this, actually Pulitzer comes in and says, I will pay you guys whatever Hearst offers, I'll match it. But Pulitzer was not able to create the same work environment that Hearst was. Pulitzer liked things to revolve around him. He liked to be able to hire and fire people at will. He thought he was the genius. He was the one who came up with the headlines. He was the one who came up with the strategy. And so he didn't value writers in the same way that Hearst did. And so they could tell, they could tell that they were replaceable. And Hearst is offering them these long multi-year contracts. He's saying, not only will I pay you well, but I'll pay you well for a long time. I really value you. You're going to be here for a long time, give you all the stability that you want. And so all these writers say yes. And he, so he pilfers the world and brings all these great writers to the journal. One newspaper at this time wrote that they wouldn't be surprised if the labor authorities got involved. They said, quote, he is a monopolist of talent. Whenever he sees a brilliant intellect sparkle, he wishes to wear it on the bosom of the journal. And so at this point, Pulitzer can see which way the wind is blowing. And so he fully goes into, all right, we're just going to copy everything that Hearst does. And so he actually starts looking around for a spy. Um, he starts offering a bounty. Anyone who, who works at the office of the journal, who's willing to come spy for us. And, and so he gets some spies inside the journal. He starts copying him exactly in everything. So there's this one yellow cartoon character that is in the journal. Pulitzer hires a different artist to draw cartoons of the exact same character. So this is actually when the term yellow journalism comes into, into play because there are two newspapers that are running the same cartoon of this little yellow guy. And so they all have this yellow guy on their front page. So it's called yellow journalism. Now, all of this kind of bring Hearst and Pulitzer into a tie. The journal is on the level of the world. But then there are two things that break that tie. The first is the campaign of William Jennings Bryan. Bryan was this real firebrand, fiery speaker, this radical leftist. He's kind of a a proto-socialist. And he was a Trump-like figure in many ways. He was very popular with a lot of people who felt marginalized. Frankly, popular with many of the same people with whom Trump was popular. He was a firebrand, a great public speaker, and he was taboo amongst high society. He was persona non grata. Endorsing or being affiliated with him was social suicide. Now, William Jennings Bryan is a Democrat, and both the world and the journal were Democratic papers. But because he was so controversial, basically every New York Democratic paper did not endorse him in 1896. They all declined to do so, except for William Randolph Hearst and the journal. Hearst decides that he's a Democratic paper, and so he's going to stand for the Democrat. And there's intense pressure not to do this. Advertisers pull their advertising. All his Wall Street buddies are complaining and saying, this, this is horrible. You can't do this. Hearst uh, later ran an editorial in the journal that read, editorial guns raked us, business guns shattered us, popular guns battered us, and above the din and flame of battle, the curses of the Wall Street crowd that hated us. Advertisers called on me and said they would take out every advertisement 
if I continued to support Brian. And I told them to take out their advertisements as I needed more space in which to support him. <laughs> so you can see how passionate he is. These advertisers say, look, man, if you don't stop supporting Brian, we're going to cancel our ads. He says, cancel your ads. I need more space to support Brian with. So he's very intransigent about this. And this does lead to a short-term loss in advertising revenue, but it leads to a huge uptick in the number of subscribers. They're getting a massive number of subscribers at this time. And there are two reasons for that. One is William Jennings Bryan was very popular with a certain crowd, especially the working class. And there's only one newspaper that supports him. And so of course, if you support William Jennings Bryan, you're gonna go subscribe to the journal. And then the other thing is that even people who didn't necessarily love William Jennings Bryan, you know, they maybe weren't huge fans. They still wanted to follow what was happening with his campaign. Again, it's a little bit like the Trump phenomenon. If you remember in 2016, it definitely was not only Fox News that was covering Trump. CNN, MSNBC, nonstop were covering Trump because everyone wanted to know what will this guy say next? And so that is happening here. People want to follow the Brian campaign, even if they aren't supporters. And there's only one place where they can go to get that information. And that's because the journal had great access to the William Jennings Bryan campaign because they were the only newspaper who endorsed him. And so what ended up happening is they were basically the Bryan campaign's headquarters in New York. You know, they essentially worked hand in hand with the Bryan campaign. They had all the latest and best information about his campaign. And so lots of people were very interested in this. William Jennings Bryan ends up losing the election, but even afterwards it represents kind of a shift for the New York Journal. And it's a shift from being just a normal newspaper to being almost like an activist organization. It's a little difficult to explain, but so for example, uh, this is the age of trusts and monopolies and a lot of corruption in the United States. And in one of these instances of corruption, there is a contract that gets given out in New York City to this well-connected guy, and he's supposed to tear up a street and install some gas mains but these gas mains are totally unnecessary. So this guy's going to tear up a street and fill it in again for no reason whatsoever other than it's just a contract to put some money in his pocket. So the journal hires a lawyer and goes to the Supreme Court and files an injunction to have this process stopped. And it does. It works. And so, of course, they report on it and they report on themselves as the heroes of this story. Around this time, they adopt the motto, while others talk, the journal acts. And so they're not just reporting the news. They're making the news. And that's very important because it generates exponentially more interest than just reporting on the news. So that is one thing that starts to vault the journal ahead of the world. And then the other thing is the Spanish-American War, which I referenced a little bit at the beginning. So there had been simmering discontent in Cuba. Uh, the Spanish owned the country of Cuba and the Cubans were interested in independence. So there's a revolution uh, in 1868 and then it doesn't really go anywhere. It's kind of simmering for a long time. And then in 1895, it really starts to break out. And um, that's because of some economic factors, some economic headwinds in Cuba. So there's a lot of discontent. There are minor skirmishes with the government. And so Spain cracks down. They send in the army, conduct mass arrests. They set up concentration camps. People are dying. It looks horrible. And the journal is breathlessly reporting this whole thing. And it looks like a full-scale civil war could break out in Cuba at any time. And Hearst immediately seizes on this. He sends a reporter in 1895. This is the famous story that I told at the beginning of the reporter going and writing back and saying, hey, nothing's going on. And he says, hey, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war. And I think what he's actually talking about is not that he's going to cause the United States to get into war with Spain. He's basically saying, we'll make up the stories. Not that I have a way to manage to get the U.S. government into this war on my own will, he didn't quite have that level of power. But as I said, this is a story about power. And this is the time when William Randolph Hearst starts to think, okay, what power do I have? What can I get away with? So for example, he's reporting on these stories in Cuba. In one of them, he reports on this outrageous story of this woman, Angelina Seros. She's the daughter of a rebel captain. And supposedly some Spanish officers sees her, thinks she's pretty, and he tries to seduce her. And um, she rejects his advances. Then he tries to force himself on her and uh, she runs away. And so as a consequence, this officer has her arrested and thrown in jail. 
And so this is a great story, right? He loved to put beautiful women in distress on the, the cover of his newspapers. So look at this innocent woman who's in jail because she wanted to keep her virtue and resisted the advances of this despicable Spanish officer. It's a great story. So they make a huge deal about it. And then he decides, remember, others talk, the journal acts. So he decides he's going to act. So he sends one of his reporters to Cuba, gives him a bunch of money and says, hey, see what you can do to free this woman, Angelina Seros. And so he uses his money. He bribes some officers. He bribes some guards and manages to smuggle her out of Cuba. And so she comes to New York. And of course, William Randolph Hearst dresses her up like a princess in this white dress and parades her around the city in, in a literal parade in New York. And this is a genius move. I mean, think of the amount of self-promotion that this generates for, for Hearst and for the journal. It, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's a masterstroke. Now, it doesn't immediately come to war. The situation is simmering in Cuba for years. And then finally, in 1898, the United States sends a battleship called the USS Maine to Havana, to the capital of Cuba. There were a lot of economic ties that Americans had in Cuba. A lot of Americans owned businesses, owned farms. Many Americans lived there. So they say, okay, we're just going to send a battleship to hang out in the harbor in Havana to, to make sure that Americans in Cuba are okay. And then on February 15th, 1898, the USS Maine blows up, completely explodes, and it kills 250 sailors on board. It's the middle of the night when William Randolph Hearst finds out via telephone. He's at home. He picks it up. Obviously, he knows if he's getting called in the middle of the night. It's big news. So he says, okay, what, what's the big news? What's so important that you woke me up? And they say, the battleship Maine has been blown up in Havana Harbor. And he says, good heavens, what have you done with the story? We've put it on the front page, of course. Have you put anything else on the front page? Only the other big news. And then William says, there is no other big news. Please spread the story all over the page. This means war. Initially, the president, President McKinley, is cautious. It's unclear what caused the USS Maine to blow up. It could have been just an accidental fire that lit off some ammunition inside the ship, so it blew up. Or the other likely scenario was a Spanish mine. If it was a Spanish mine, it was probably an accident. I mean, it seems to stretch the imagination that the Spanish would intentionally blow up the ship because, you know, for the Spanish, the worst possible outcome is that the United States of America gets involved. So it was probably either an accidental mine or an accidental explosion on board the ship. We actually still don't know. But President McKinley establishes a naval commission to investigate and to find out uh, what happened. And it takes them a while to investigate. And every day they're investigating, Hearst is killing President McKinley in the newspaper saying, you know, Americans are dead. And look at this coward who won't avenge them, who won't go to war with Spain. And so there is this immense pressure. It's not just from Hearst, but Hearst is definitely the loudest voice in calling for war in Cuba. And then the Naval Commission comes back and they say, we can't know for sure, but it definitely is possible that it could have been a mine. And that's enough to kind of set off alarm bells everywhere. Even still, President McKinley and, and some level heads are trying to see if there's a diplomatic solution with Spain. So they enter into negotiations, but they can't come to an agreement. And so on April 21st, McKinley asks for war authorization and Congress gives it to him. Interestingly, once war breaks out, this is one of the most fascinating things. William Randolph Hearst tries to conduct his own war. So the Spanish have a number of colonial possessions. Two of their biggest ones are Cuba and the Philippines over in the Pacific. So they got these two different theaters of war and they're trying to move warships between the two and there's the thought that some of those are going to go through the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal is in Egypt. It's what gets you from the Mediterranean out towards Asia. And so Hearst has this idea. He wants to see if he can go take one of his yachts and sink it in the Suez Canal to delay the Spanish from moving their fleet through, through the canal and being able to come and, and move uh, a fleet that was in Asia over to the Atlantic theater to fight in Cuba. But I mean, it's just really interesting that he's even thinking like that. Like, how can I personally use my resources to help wage war on Spain? He runs a headline less than a week after war is declared that reads, how do you like the journal's war? So this isn't just, you know, hindsight where people are saying that William Randolph Hearst started this war. He's actively trying to encourage 
this idea that he's the one that started the war. He's calling it the journal's war. And so obviously as a newspaper, not only are they trying to conduct the war by sinking ships in the Suez Canal, but they're going to cover the war, of course. And I always love how to take over the world crossovers. And we get one here. This is the first time that Hearst starts working with the Edison company to produce motion pictures, movies of the war. And so Hearst sends a bunch of journalists, photographers, and cartoonists over to Cuba and a few guys that he contracts with from the Edison company to document everything about this new Spanish-American war. At some point, people start teasing him like, all right, you're so anxious for the United States to send all these boys over to go die in Cuba. You're only 35, William Randolph Hearst. You're not an old man. What are you doing? Why can't you go fight? And so he does ask President McKinley, like, can I form my own outfit? Can I have my own little cavalry company and kind of go over there as mercenaries? He says, no, if you're going to go fight, you have to do it with the U.S. Army. And Hearst is not about to go enlist. So he doesn't go over as a soldier, but what he does is he gets authorization to outfit a yacht with guns and heads over as an armed war correspondent. So that's what he does. Uh, Hearst himself goes over with a bunch of journalists to Cuba. Shortly after arriving, he goes towards the front lines where they're trying to report. And they come to this area they do not realize is a fortified Spanish position. And so the Spanish start shooting at them. And one of his journalists gets shot. And uh, it's not life-threatening. He gets shot in the arm or the leg. But he's bleeding profusely. And Hearst goes over to him. And he treats the wound. It's kind of heroic, right? But listen to what he says to him. This is... This is genuine obsession. He goes over to his friend, this journalist who's been shot. And he says, this is a quote. Sorry, you're hurt, but wasn't that a splendid fight? We're going to beat every paper in the world. So like, even as his friend is shot and bleeding on the ground, all he can think about is, man, this is going to make an amazing newspaper tomorrow. He mean, Hearst, man, he was one of a kind. Another thing he does while he's there is he's on his battle yacht, as I like to call it. And they're kind of on the outside of the American Navy where a battle is about to take place. They're sailing towards the Spanish Navy and there's gonna be a naval battle. And the Navy says to him, hey, can you beat it? You're not a warship. We're about to have an actual fight. Can you leave? And Hearst just says no and hangs out on the outside of this battle. And so as the battle is kind of wrapping up, the Americans win. A bunch of Spanish battleships have been blown up. And some sailors from the Spanish fleet have managed to swim to shore. And so Hearst takes his yacht and sails over to these sailors and takes 29 Spanish soldiers as prisoners. And they're pretty happy to be taken as prisoner. They just, you know, want to be dry and on board and get some food. And so he, he takes them prisoner and eventually delivers them to the U.S. Navy to hold his prisoners. And so, again, this makes great news. And even other newspapers have to give him credit. Like, man, what a story. You know, while others talk, the journal acts. I mean, that's true for sure. They're involved in the war. They're taking Spanish prisoners. I mean, can you imagine that today? Can you imagine that Fox News or MSNBC reports? Yeah, we had some reporters in Afghanistan, and they actually took 29 Taliban fighters as prisoners and turned them over to the U.S. government. You know, what kind of sensation would that cause? What, what would you think of a journalistic organization that was capable of doing that? And so, again... This key insight of William Randolph Hearst, don't just report the news, make the news. That is when you generate the most attention. So, of course, the United States is easily victorious in the Spanish-American War, and the Hearst papers grow tremendously throughout the war. The journal has now surpassed the world, and it's the biggest newspaper in New York, and therefore the biggest newspaper in the world. And Hearst not only has the confidence that he is the best newspaper man, but he's starting to think of himself as a man of destiny of the kind of guy who can take prisoners and free princesses in the middle of a war. So he comes home from Cuba, ready to make an even bigger impact on the world. So we'll talk about what that impact is next episode. But for now, to finish up, let's talk about some lessons. I mean, to me, one of the big lessons is he's 35 years old and he's doing all this stuff. But what's interesting is he still only got two newspapers. Yes, they're very big and very influential and great newspapers, but it's kind of remarkable for someone who, you know, ends up being known as this titan of business, owning this huge conglomerate with all these media properties, that it's been 10 years that he's been in business and there's no conglomerate. There's just two newspapers. And to me, there's a lesson in that. I think 
people, when they start to get successful, immediately want to expand into other products, other mediums, other channels. I think that's particularly a temptation for creators. But you can see that, no, 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 Hearst doubles down on his one or two best channels until they're absolutely dominant. And only then, only once he's completely ahead of the field, does he think about expanding. And so I think there's a lesson there. And then, you know, just to reiterate some of the other stuff I mentioned throughout, you have to be a sicko, an absolute sicko. I think that's what Hearst is. His mother refers to his habit of collecting his love of art as an affliction. It's like a disease. That's what she compares it to. And that's how he feels about great writing and great newspapers. He has an affliction. He can't help himself. He loves this writing. He can't help but collect these great writers. He can't help but want to make the absolute best content for his newspaper, no matter the cost. He is a sicko for great content. And if you are not a sicko, if you're someone who is just in it for the money, you are never going to be able to compete with the sickos for the people who are doing it for the love of the game. That was one of my big takeaways from meeting Mr. Beast. That guy loves YouTube, not just because it has made him a bunch of money and he's done well with it, but because he's a consumer as well. He's just a sicko like Hearst is. He just loves to watch YouTube videos. So you have to have that sickness if you want to be great. Other lessons, when it comes to media, you have to spare no expense in making your content the best. In some industries, there is room for luxury products and then cheaper ones. You have Rolex and then you have Timex. But in media, you know, the cost of a newspaper is basically the same as any other paper. The cost of a movie ticket is the same no matter what movie you're going to. And that's even more true nowadays when most media is free. You know, my podcast costs the same as every other podcast, free 99. Uh, if you go to YouTube, basically every video costs the same as every other video on YouTube. They're all free. So if your content is even just 5% worse than the competition, then people are going to watch something else. It doesn't get any cheaper. So why would I watch worse content? So you have to spend whatever it takes to make the best stuff. If you want to get ears, if you want to get eyeballs, another lesson is that it is never a losing strategy to get all the best talent in an industry and put them under one roof. But just, it seems to me, whether it's Apple, whether it's Nike, whether it's the San Francisco examiner or the New York journal, it always works. And it's a big reason why Hearst was successful is he created, uh, as Winifred Black said, a place full of geniuses. And I think in order to create that kind of place, you have to create an environment where those kinds of people love to be and love to work. Okay. Well, that is it for this week until next time. Thank you for listening to how to take over the world. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12 gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.